the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guests, Sting. The big data behind your music streaming will introduce you to Greg Delaney of Entertainment Intelligence. His technology helps labels figure out what you like and ways to give you more of it. Plus, Baby Yoda wins hearts and minds of Star Wars fans. Can we convert our resident Trekkie? (laughs) No. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Have you been watching The Mandalorian? No. Is the world more peaceful since the revolution? It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. No, I don't know what a Mandalorian is. Is it something that uh, uh, R.E.M. plays on some of the records? Yeah, very good. Um, the Mandalorian is the new Disney Plus Star Wars uh, weekly TV show. It follows a bounty hunter who is not unlike Boba Fett. Uh, Boba Fett from the original Star Wars wore the same uniform of a Mandalorian, even though he himself was not a Mandalorian. What? Okay, stop. What? I, I, what is a Mandalorian? Mandalorian is um, a race of people, I guess, um, and they're a warrior race. And the Mandalorian TV show takes place five years after, I believe five years after the the uh, Return of the Jedi. So the Empire is no more. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how the good guys won, but for the outer rim regions of the Star Wars galaxy, it's just an absolute shit show mm-hmm. because everyone's focused on the inner core. And so it's a Wild West out on the outer rim of, of the, the Star Wars galaxy. And the Mandalorian is an individual. We don't even, we, we never get to see his face because Mandalorians don't take off their helmets ever. Oh. Of which my 13-year-old daughter said, not even to bathe? Wash your hair? Yeah. So maybe we don't want to see these people take their masks off, their helmets off. But um, it's really well done. And the neat thing about it is that it, um, it was pitched essentially to the public before it launched as... Star Wars without the Jedi. Yeah, okay. So it's like a real nitty gritty, real world kind of thing. And then in basically the opening episode, we get Baby Yoda. And suddenly it's all about the Force again. <sighs> and this bounty hunter who is rescued, it's not actually Yoda because it takes place long after he's dead, but it's the same sort of race of creature. 
And so now it's all... I thought you would have watched The Last of His Kind. Apparently not. And we're getting some sort of hints that maybe the bad guys are, are trying to steal him, hence the hiring of the bounty hunter to, to snatch him, uh, as a means of cloning this little Yoda-like character so that they can create an army of incredibly force-capable miniature frogs. <laughs> Uh, but the thing is, is that, you know, I was really going into this, really looking forward to it. And I, I watched it with my daughter, who's 13, and she doesn't give a rat's ass about the grit and grime of the Star Wars universe. Now that there's a baby Yoda there, she, it's, it's like bringing in a puppy dog. As far as she's concerned, she's happy to watch the show because of that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like what they tried to do with Jar Jar Binks. Oh, oh no, the Ewoks, Ewoks. <laughs> Cut it out. Exactly. So there's, there's, you definitely know there's a merchandising component built into this. Yes. But John Favreau is the guy behind it. You know, the guy who started his career with swingers and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That digits, baby. Yeah, what a surprise. What's wrong? Right. So we talked to the beautiful brunette baby. Look, she didn't like me. Okay, I'm in a fool of myself. Baby, don't talk that way. But you're right? so, you're so money, and you don't even know it. That's what I keep trying to tell you. So money. Could you, you not mess with it. me right now? He has become a Star Wars fanatic, and he's doing a remarkable job of bringing that world to us with the grit and the grime that George Lucas tried to do in 1977 to get away from the very cold and clean world of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, fine. You enjoy it. Your daughter can enjoy it. You can go buy all the little baby odors you want. I'll be sitting here on the sidelines waiting for the Picard series to debut in January. Uh, you know what? I have a feeling that Picard series is going to be super slow. No, Well, I think it'll be very good. I, I don't disagree with you on that. I'm sure they're going to throw a ton of money at it to make sure it's very well done. I don't need any more shit to blow up. I'm tired of shit blowing up. Uh, see, that's the difference between you and me. Um, with me, it's all about that grit and grime of a real world. With Star Trek, it's very much a, um, a, a more clean kind of world that bears zero resemblance to our actual world. We'll see. We will see. Hey, I got myself a, well, I didn't get myself, Intel sent me an i9-9900K. Which is? Yeah, I figured crickets. That is the world's most powerful consumer-grade CPU. So, oh, I'm sorry, what, what's, what is it? It's a CPU chip. Yeah, no, no, what's, what's it called? It's the i9-9900K. It runs at 5 gigahertz. Wow. Now, it has eight cores, and for those who aren't geeks like me, a core is basically a miniature CPU. It's, it, it is a full-fledged CPU, and so the, the big advance that we had seen over the last 15 years was putting multiple CPUs on a giant chip, and it started off with two-core, four-core, and now we're at eight-core, and so it can run one of those cores at five gigahertz. The other seven can't uh, simultaneously, but certain apps will take advantage of that. Others won't. But the real upside is that now I've got the world's most powerful computer for virtual reality. I was about to say, yeah, you're going to probably freak out on this. So uh, you just got the, the you, you just got the CPU. And yeah, Intel sent it to me for free. It was like 500 bucks. Right. And unfortunately, it required me to also spend 500 bucks to get a motherboard. Motherboard. Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> and then I also recently got a high-end graphics card, a, a, an RTX 2070S, which is more than enough power for VR. So what did I do? I went out and I dropped $1,400 on the world's most powerful VR headset called the Valve Index. Uh-huh. I've got chills. 
any time like at this moment the doorbell could ring and it could be here oh god all right well you so uh, when you come over to do the racing simulator with, oh that's right yes okay okay fine fine w- with the vr uh steering wheel with the force feedback and the pedals and all that kind of stuff you are in for quite a treat as far as the quality of of that experience right okay well we'll see what happens and of course the wife is just like all right. Eyes, there's yes. another there's another big white box sitting in the family room now. Uh-huh. You know, where's that money coming from? Better not be out of my salary. No, this is the other thing about being now one of these independent corporate type guys where I've got my own business. This is all right offable as research and development. Yes, it is. And it's genuine research and development. No, 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 I'm, no, no, no. We're not. We're, we're, I'm not making fun of you. You're absolutely right. I was at a presentation at a high school earlier this week talking about the future and a bunch of different technologies. And it was really neat because there were three different groups. There were the um, business geeks who were here to see, you know, BNN's Michael Hainsworth. There were the uh, technology geeks who were there to hear about the future with my Futurhythmic documentary series. And then there were the car geeks. (laughs) And I have no idea. But a group of them came up to me and for some reason, and I couldn't quite figure out why, they were like, so what are you driving? And I realized that that was, that was a litmus test for these 17-year-old kids as to whether or not I was a genuine authority figure in their eyes. That's right. And you failed. No, I didn't. Because they were all Asian kids who came up to me. And when I told them I drove a Nissan, oh. they were like, okay, you're cool. We, we, we'll, we'll accept that. Did you tell them that it was... A Murano? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I told them it was a 2015 Murano, but then I went into the explanation that unlike these kids, um, I don't have a, a, a geek on for cars. And so my wife and I, we drive cars into the ground. The last car we had was a Honda Civic for 11 years. And so we missed an entire upgrade cycle in the technology. And at the time between when we bought that car and we bought this car, people's opinions about what constituted an important component of a vehicle went from what was under the hood to what was behind the dashboard right okay and so they were at least keen to know that i was at least up to speed on those advances even if it wasn't even a level two car wifey wouldn't let me buy a car that did self-parking no you don't need it you need to have that skill i i don't disagree with you but that's sort of the thin edge to the wedge to getting other people who don't believe the self-driving car is something they're interested in actually interested in autonomous vehicles. All right, we'll have to agree to disagree on this one. Watch out, here I come. Come, 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 come. We have a proliferation of data in the music industry now that everything's digital. Back in the olden days of advertising, there was this line that went, we know 50% of advertising works. We just don't know which 50% it is. (laughs) Yes. Since then, of course, we now have algorithmic and programmatic trading systems for swapping advertising modules between websites. Every time you go somewhere, it's tracking what you're doing, who you are, building a profile of all of this about you just to feed you the ads you would most likely be interested in seeing versus the old 50% model of maybe you're interested, maybe you're not. And I suppose we can apply that same sort of theory to the music industry now. 
I, I guess we can. Um, I mean, one of the things that we're trying to figure out is monetization. In the old days, it used to be really simple. You sold pieces of plastic, you sold t-shirts, you sold uh, concert tickets. Now it's not like that anymore. You got to figure out how you're going to keep the money coming in now that those pieces of plastic aren't worth as much as they used to be. And we've talked in the past about how the proliferation of digital streaming services has given us a remarkable amount of data that helps us with things like how to build the perfect song, build the track that's going to be that big summertime hit, things like that. But I suppose there's that much more behind the scenes on this big data than even just building the perfect track. Well, yeah, you know, there are some of the smartest managers and some of the smartest label executives I know are the people who know how to interpret the data. I mean, there's so much of it out there. The trick is making sure that you're looking at meaningful data and that you are um, collating it into things that can actually help you out. And to your point, there was a time when we only had a rough knowledge as to what people were consuming music-wise. When I went out and bought a compact disc, very little chance that the record label knew anything about me and my interests that made me choose to make that purchase in the first place. And not only that, not only that, they didn't know whether you listened to it at all. How many times did you listen to it? What songs were you listening to? Did you just put it on the shelf and, and never bother with it again? I mean, that was the thing. Once the transaction was completed, you had no... The people behind the record had no idea of your engagement with it. With that in mind, we're going across the pod now to get a deep dive into the world of big data in the music industry from Entertainment Intelligence's man at the top, Greg Delaney. He's the founder. He joins us now. Good to have you with us. Good to chat. I think I should give you guys a job. You, you sound like you, you understand the metrics and what's, um, what's going on, which is refreshing. Well, we've been studying this for quite some time because, you know, we're fascinated by... This this fire hose of data that's coming from companies like the Echo Nest and 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 this the the, the stuff that they parrot out back at us, but there's got to be more to it than we're being told. What is some of that data that that you get behind the scenes that we might not be aware of that helps make decisions? We um, I suppose the key difference with us is that we're the the data management company on behalf of our clients. So uh, unlike a scraping service or a, a sort of top-level aggregated view, we go into the DSPs, so the, the vendors like Spotify, Apple, Deezer, Google, etc., and we get a direct feed of the granular data. So when we say granular, we mean every listener, their identifier, uh, the date of birth, uh, age, gender, location. Um, so location down to two digits of the postcode, for instance. Um, what device they're on, uh, what playlists they're on, whether they save the music, that type of thing. And you can only get that if you've, um, if you've gone in via the contracted agreement um, with, the, with the DSP and with the client. Um, they're, very, they're very clear in their agreements that uh, the public data is really just a, a top-level view. Anything below that needs to be uh, through an agreement with both parties. So, so that's what we do. We, we do that on behalf of um, about 14,000 uh, labels, just short of 4 million tracks. And we ingest about 170 million lines of granular data every day. You can't handle that data on an individual basis. I can't possibly imagine you've got a data scientist sitting there looking at that material. There's got to be a machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithm somewhere in your network. <laughs> 
be nice if we had lots of uh, data analysts training machine learning. That would be that would be our perfect uh, our perfect world. I suppose if you look at the key metrics that mean most to our clients currently, um, it really is what's happening now. What are the what are the most important uh, ben, uh, playlists or benchmarks that I need to worry about? I think going into 2020, we'll get much more clever about how we do this stuff. And as you were, one of the points you were raising, we are moving into a world where this is like share trading. This is penny share trading we're now in. And, and the industry has to understand that and know how to, to work that way. So how are your customers using the data? And, and what, what is the, the data that they're most interested in? So an example would be, um, if you're looking at playlists, for instance, uh, a lot of people will go for vanity metrics. So they'll say, this particular playlist has 2 million followers, which is great. And if you can get on it, well, good luck to you because um, it will definitely generate you a fair amount of streams. But most uh, most clients, other than the major labels, don't have the resources to get onto those playlists. Uh, so what you need to do is say, okay, well, of the ones that I could potentially get onto, um, what's which one's going to give me most bang for my bucks? What's the ROI on that particular playlist? And it is down to that return on investment because your time and effort to get on there is your investment. And then your return is you need to make sure that you stay on there for long enough and you generate decent streams. So we have things like benchmarks where we've taken all our clients' data, we've asked for their permission, and then we've anonymized it and come back with a benchmark that says this playlist uh, a single track on this playlist will generate, say, 500 streams per day, whereas this playlist will generate 1,000 streams a day. So that's your first measure. The second one is then how long on average would my track expect to live on this playlist? A uh, good example would be, um, I always use the Nordic Folk. It's a Spotify-owned playlist, very, very tightly curated, doesn't change very much, very niche. Um, you get about 800 to 1,000 streams a day on that playlist, but you'll be on there for about 290 days. Whereas if you were to get on to Motivation Mix, one of the big workout playlists, that'll get you about 10,000 streams a day, which is great. But the churn rate is very high. It's, it's workout, it's major label, it's pop, um, and it'd be 9 to 14 day turnaround on that. So, so when you times that by the number of streams per day, and the chances are of getting on it are pretty low because, like I say, it's mostly major label content or you know top top fifty at best uh, content. Then actually, your return on the other one is going to be better. And then are, once you're on it, sorry, go for it. Are, are, are you familiar with the term Moneyball? Yes, <laughs> good film. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. First job in baseball? It's my first job anywhere. We're going to shake things up. Why don't you walk me through the board? I believe there's a championship team that we could afford because everyone else undervalues them, like an island of misfit toys. We want you at first base. I've only ever played catcher. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, watch. It's incredibly hard. He can't throw. But what can he do? You want me to speak? When I point you yet. He gets on base. We are card counters at the blackjack table. We're going to turn the odds on the casino. This is Moneyball for music. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose um, the margins are so tight now. And you've got to move the needle slightly to the right and stop it from slipping slightly to the left. And if you can't do that, then someone else will. 
Last week, I moderated a panel for Entertainment TO, and we had four guys who were into data analytics for sport. And what they would do with these programs that they have is look at what kind of trades they need need to make, what kinds of um, where a, a player should be in the lineup, how long they should remain on the field, on the court, on the ice, all those things. So you end up having this, this perfect storm of statistics, which should deliver maximum results for minimum salary layout. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so this is kind of what you're doing. Yeah, and and actually that that um, that sports analogy is one that I use quite often. Um, so what's happened with algorithmic playlists, especially with personalized ones, which is really kicked in now, and people don't get this, is the way a personalized playlist works is they will curate. Um, the, so Spotify, for instance, will curate a, a pool of tracks around about say 300 tracks that fit the uh, the model of that playlist. So the vibe and the the team and the the uh, the tribe or whatever that playlist, and then the algorithm will personalize that playlist according to uh, your listening habits. And so anyone going into a particular playlist uh, and comparing it to a friend, if you if you do that on a personalized playlist, you'll notice your your playlist look completely different. But in total, there'll be about three hundred tracks that made up the pool. So if you call one of the APIs for, for a playlist and say, what tracks are currently on that playlist, the API will only t return 50 tracks that are the, the most consumed uh, on average, or the starting lineup, so to speak. So anyone that's giving you a, a view of that playlist and saying that's the, the, the whole truth about that playlist is giving you a false reading. The only thing that really um, will give you the true reading is the real streaming numbers that actually happened. In other words, how the computer dished them out. So to go to that sports analogy, I said, effectively the DSPs or the vendors have, have created a problem for themselves and for everyone, where if you wanted to know who was in the starting lineup or what the score of the game was, it's effectively someone's taken the numbers off the back of the shirts and the names, covered up the scoreboard and covered up the dugout and the only way you know what the hell is going on is to ask each player as they leave the pitch, what's your name and how many goals did you score? Because that's the world we're now in. It feels like you're in a sort of a music cold war. You've got competing algorithms at play. The, the, those streaming audio services are putting music in front of listeners based on their interests, and an algorithm has, is responsible for that. And then you've got the labels trying to wedge their way into those playlists, regardless as to what I'm interested in, because they know that there's a return on investment associated with it. Yeah. And the follow account actually now, for the first time, really makes a difference. So if an artist is getting really good... Um, follow account, not just a static count, as in, you know, they released an album two years ago and it was a big hit and they had a huge number of super fans and that was it. That follow account has to be consistently growing. So your velocity has an effect on where you'll be placed on those, um, on those personalized playlists. Uh, I mean, um, one of our clients, Mushroom Records in Australia, was talking to us about um, a playlist called Aussie Barbecue. It's a big, big playlist because, as you can imagine, People have a barbecue, they slap on Aussie barbecue, and it just plays in the background. Um, so everyone goes to that as a, as a default, and it used to be pretty much controlled by the majors. Since it's gone personalized, Mushroom have seen a huge increase, not only in the number of streams that they're getting from that playlist, but also the number of different tracks featuring. 
but they've seen an uptick in tracks and on top of that, a payback on the number of streams because the computer is actually deciding based on what fans really listen to, not who's put the most pressure on the playlist curator. So in the long run, it's probably a good thing. Who hires you? <laughs> so um, at the moment, mostly uh, distributors and labels. So Secret Canadian, um, Zibrolution, Zelon in Australia, Naxos, people like that. 14,000 labels, you said? 14,000 labels, yeah. A lot of those will come under a distribution deal. So Zebralution in Germany might have uh, 2,000 labels underneath them. We have a data sharing model, which means they can then give the dashboard to all of their clients um, as a white label service, and we manage the data on their behalf. But then labels like Epitaph and Hopeless and Mom and Pop, and they all use it uh, themselves. And then underneath that, there's the sharing model allows you to share to artists as well. So Courtney Barnett's management now can see Courtney's data from remote control in Australia and mom and pop in America, but neither of those two labels can see her data that they shouldn't. So they all So you can cut territorial deals that work best for you, but your manager will get one view. Now that Spotify is deep into podcasts, will you be doing that? It's an interesting one. It's definitely a, I think it's a good sales model. I think the, um, Maybe not so much podcasts, but if you look at curated playlists, I think the the hybrid is really exciting. It's 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 interactive radio. Do you have the granularity that gives you the ability to know that I've only listened to halfway through a track when the chorus came in? I wasn't really pleased with it. It, it didn't it didn't reach me, so I hit skip. Um, do you have the ability to go back to the labels and say? Here's what a musician is doing right with their music. Here's what a musician is doing wrong. Yeah, um, we actually get the duration of, of every single stream. So we know how long each listener listened for, whether they saved the track, etc. And And to that skip point, um, we're actually expanding our skip reporting to put sort of um, bad, good, and neutral skips. And the way that would work is if you... Um, if you've listened to this track five times and then you skip, that's fairly neutral. If you've saved the track, then it's a good skip because it's perfectly acceptable that you're going to skip it. Whereas if this is only the first or second time you've heard it or you've not listened to this band more than 80% of their entire catalogue, that's pretty bad. You've lost someone there. So that's one side of it. The other one is actually... Um, we had a, a case with a, with a client who was concerned that a particular track was getting skipped quite heavily uh, in one territory. And so we broke out the territories and the, and the average listen time and found that they were all, all the Asian countries seemed to be skipping at this very harsh guitar piece. And the German or the, or the sort of Northern European were going for it all the way through, rocking out. Um, and they've actually done a remix based on that ah. because they can take action around it. So you mentioned 2020 and, and I sort of touched on the idea of artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms playing mm. a role in this. What are you planning for 2020 in that department? So the step now is really to look at increasing the amount of benchmarking, increasing the amount of um, intelligence around hotspots and areas that are growing. So where are you over-indexing or where are you missing a trick or where is, um, where is someone else similar to you doing well uh, and you need a lot of data to be crunched to to, to spot those those things um, so if you were just saying a chart is you know top 50 top 100 even if it was top thousand 
that's only measuring, say, the total number of streams. But you might be, you know, position 900 uh, based on your streaming numbers. But you might be position 800 based on the velocity of your fans through YouTube converting to, or from Facebook converting to YouTube converting to streaming, i.e. coming from a free source to a cheap source to a, well, a premium paid source. Um, and then looking and going, okay, per territory, where do I rate? Or in this genre, where do I rate? So really you're saying, what's my chart position? It's 900. Who's in 890 and who's in 910? I don't want to drop down and I do want to move up. What are they doing that I could do that to improve or stop myself sliding back and being able to measure at every level? And taking the guesswork out of what's a really volatile industry. It is. And again, you go from knowing 50% of what works to knowing 100% of what works. Or close to it. Or close to it. Or, you know, stone, if you're paying for Facebook ads, for instance, if you're not getting a return on that, stop paying for them. You know, people spout on about, oh, I can get you clicks for streams. Please don't. Please don't. Because if I'm, if I'm paying per click per stream, I'm paying someone to stream the music because the return on each individual stream is way less than I'm paying for the, to buy the clicks. Greg Delaney is the founder of Entertainment Intelligence. He joined us from London. It was London, wasn't it? I hope so. <laughs> it's, it's raining, so yes. Greg, thank you so much. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. We have more supporters to get us to CES 2020, my friend. Oh, well, that's excellent. Yes, we want to say thank you to Ryan Metherall, who donated 25 bucks to our GoFundMe campaign. Alan Gibson donated 100 bucks, so we're going to, courtesy of our longtime patron, Victor Biggio, send him off a miracle travel mug of traveling. Uh, Joe Vanden Dickenberg sent us 300, sent us 150 bucks. Wow, thank you. So, so we're going to send him a mug and a half. Mm, okay. We'll send them the top half. Nothing? No. Okay. Michael Lang, thank you for your $25 contribution. Stephen Robinson as well donated 10 bucks. And then as I mentioned last week, we got a whole bunch of other people as well who helped cover the additional cost of your extra long legs on the flight. Thank you. That required us to spend 350 additional dollars on flights just so that you got the exit row. I needed the exit row because I'm still twisted like a pretzel for my 15-hour flight in economy on Air Canada from Hong Kong. So we are now basically 300 additional dollars in the kitty for CES 2020 in January. That will help cover our Ubers and our meals as well. So thank you so much for helping make it possible for us to get there. And as a matter of fact, we think it's kind of important now, and we're going to start to get... Um, pitches from companies about the things that they want us to go cover but I don't want to go cover things based upon what companies tell us to cover I think we should cover things that our friends who have donated to the big show want us to cover I agree heartily so if you've got something you think that we need to cover by all means fire us off a, an email fire us off a note go to geeksandbeats.com right at the top of the page is the button to get you to the GoFundMe campaign so you can contribute as well, and you can share that with your friends too, and then fire us off a note telling us what you want. 
Excellent idea. We also want to say thank you over at Patreon.com to TJ Webb, Don Woodle, Adrian Bashford, Craig Aitken, Dan Rosenson, Rick C. in Oakville, Ian Long, uh, Kyle Philistrom, uh, Matthew Bertram, and others who have been donating on our Patreon uh, page to help get us there. All of the money that comes from every time we put out an episode right back into that CES 2020 kit. So uh, you're off on vacation uh, next week. Yes, I'm off to uh, Singapore on Wednesday. We're going to go see U2 at National Stadium there on the weekend. Then from there, it's off to Bali for a week so my poor wife can have a vacation. Do you get a little behind-the-scenes action with the U2, or are you just going as a... I don't know. I'm working on that right now. Working on that right now, yeah. It's a little hard, you know, being 13 time zones away, but I am working on it. And, and what's the pitch? How do, how do you convince Bono to let you get backstage? Well, in this particular case, this is the first time they've been through Southeast Asia on tour. Uh, so I want to see if I can cover it from that angle. So they're playing Manila and Bangkok and Mumbai and Singapore. So this is all new territory for them. Well, you know, as we had heard from Greg Delaney, that musical interests vary from region to region. Does U2 have particular fans that are geared towards particular genres within the U2 world? Because we know that over the history of U2, that their their sound has evolved over time. Well, I can tell you that uh, last week they issued a brand new single using an Indian producer named A.R. Raman. And it incorporates uh, elements of uh, Indian music into it. So they, they are trying to appeal to that part of the world. Uh, again, you have to understand that a lot of Southeast Asia came to rock and roll much, 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 much later than we did. Singapore, for example, my buddy has no knowledge of the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or any of those bands because for a variety of political, social, religious, economic reasons, that kind of stuff didn't really penetrate when it was happening. So he considers classic rock to be stuff from the middle 80s and uh, he thinks that Huey Lewis and Rick Astley and Whitney Houston are the greatest people in the world. And they're not? Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.